Good morning again. I wonder whether you've ever had um, one of those moments where someone has thought you were somebody else. Um, I was on the train coming back from London yes, yesterday, no, Friday, and um, I could see this guy kind of down the carriage and looking at me every so often, and I was thinking, this is a bit odd, um, and I carried on. And eventually he plucked up the courage to come and say, Dave! <laughs> and I was like, I'm not Dave! And he could see from afar that I looked like Dave, whoever Dave was, and then came to say, are you Dave? And I said, no, it was super awkward, because um, it was quite a full train, bless him. Um, my favorite example of a mistaken identity, we're gonna show this little video just to kind of warm you up. We can't leave it on YouTube, so if you're on live stream, you'll be back in about a minute. Um, some of you will remember this, it's from the BBC News. This is the ultimate example of a mistaken identity. There is a point in showing you this, I promise as well as making you laugh. segue into what I wanted to talk about this morning as we kick off our vision series for the autumn term called DNA. We're asking the question, who are we and why do we do what we do as the church? So who are we and why do we do what we do? We, we felt as we were thinking about how do we kind of keep up the vision of the church in this time in the year, which is what we always do as we regroup from the summer, that it was really important that actually we drill down, cut down again, not into what we're going to do and then we want to know what it like and how exciting it is to be all saints together, but we will speak to that. But we wanted to go back a step and say, actually, let's get back to some of the foundational theology. Who are we as followers of Jesus? Who are we as the church? And given who we are, what is it that we are here for? And therefore, here's why we do what we do here at All Saints. And so often what can happen is we can lose track of who we really are. We can lose sight of 
chance lose sight of our purpose, our reason for being here. And we find ourselves in somewhat two slightly opposite different identities and wins like we guided at that job interview which we successfully did. Um, it's really important that we continually remind ourselves and scripturally who we are, not who we want to be, who we aspire to be, but who God says we are, and the purpose that comes with that identity that God bestows upon us, so that we don't find ourselves in the wrong room and thinking the wrong thing, but actually stay on track, both individually and collectively. It's really important when we start thinking about what we're doing and, and as we think about whether we're going to put our money into it and our time into it, that we know why we're doing the things that we do as the church. And I dropped our um, youngest off for a football match this morning um, and uh, to be at church tonight. And it was interesting just to see how many people are out there on Sunday morning, playing sport, walking the dog, getting the newspaper. Like, you don't have to be here. So why are you here? And some of you might be thinking, yeah, I really want to join the church. Part of what we want to do is kind of cast off vision. Like, this is who we are. This is what we do. Here's why we do it. And to help us grapple with this, I want to introduce you, if you haven't already, to a favorite principle of mine, which is the both and principle. Jess is going to start playing Rich Johnson Bingo again. It's one of the things I say all the time to the staff team because it's a really important principle. One of the challenges for us as the people of God is to learn to embrace tension and paradox in the Christian life. We live in a world of complexity, don't we? And often what happens is we like to try to resolve some of the tension and complexity. So we kind of end up saying, well, it's either this or that. But actually woven through the Christian life is an invitation to live in an embrace of tension between both and. So for example, we live in the now of the kingdom of God and the not yet. It is here in part now, but it is not here in its fullness yet. It is still coming. So which one is it? Is it either now or not yet? Well, no, it's both and. Similarly, we are called by the scriptures to declare that we are holy. That's what it means to be a saint, to the saints in Worcester. And yet, if we're honest, at the same time, we recognize, don't we, we are imperfect and broken and sinful. So which one is it? Well, it's both holy and imperfect. We live, don't we, in a, a, as Christians in a world of suffering, and yet we're called to have joy despite the suffering. So which one is it? Is it either joy or suffering? Well, no, it's both joy and suffering. We have a, an invitation, I think, in the gospel to discover the grace of God and the truth of God. And sometimes we struggle to reconcile the two because one says, come as you are, and then the other one says... Uh, but actually, the, the Lord is redu- renewing all things, and he has something for you to step into. So which one is it? Is it grace or truth? Well, it's both grace and truth. Interesting to me, as you kind of drill into that, Jesus, when he has people come to him, there's this invitation, the invitation of grace, right? Come. The radical, inclusive welcome of Jesus. Everybody is welcomed at the feet of Jesus. The ground, as C.S. Lewis said, is level at the foot of the cross. We are all equal. And everyone is welcome. So come. But actually, it's not just come as you are and stay as you are. It also comes with challenge. Take up your cross and follow me. Be transformed, Paul says. 
by the renewing of your mind. It's not about conforming, it's about transforming. Which one is it? Is it both? It's both invitation and challenge. We'll talk about some of these over the next few weeks. We believe here that we are a word and spirit church. We, are, we center our life around the scriptures and the work of the Holy Spirit. We actively engage with both the word and the spirit. We are a church that is gathered together at points and at the rest of the time scattered. Where is church? Is church here or there? When are you church? Are you church when you're in the building or, or not? It's both gathered and scattered. You're getting the point. I'm just going to labor it a little bit longer. We talk about mission and evangelism. We're a church where we're committed to doing the things that street pastors do, mission, which is a form of evangelism, and evangelism, which is a form of mission, word and deed, proclaiming the gospel and demonstrating it. It's not one or the other, it's both and. When it comes to what we do with our resources, we are called to be both generous and sacrificial. It's both and. When it comes to our inner life together as a church, our, our shared journey, we're committed to community and being community, yes, but also formation, becoming something that we're not yet. So it's not a case of just doing discipleship or just doing community. It's both formation and, brackets, in community. You get the point? Yeah. Because that is the vision that we want to unpack over the next few weeks. And I'm not going to speak for too long this morning. I want to start by kind of giving us really the foundational both and that underpins all of those things that you just heard me outline. And that is this uh, both and of identity and purpose. God gives us both an identity and a purpose. One defines the other. We, we do what we do as the people of God, and therefore we have a version of that as the people of All Saints Worcester because of who we are. And our purpose is defined by our identity. Interesting, isn't it? In our culture, so much of our identity is derived from what we do. So the first question that you would ask people if you met them for the first time or second time, often the conversation, because we don't know what else to talk about, is, so tell me, what do you do? Oh, well, I'm a doctor. So what you do is your identity, but that's not the way of the kingdom of God. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of Christianity. The way of Christianity is, this is who you are. And therefore, this is what you do. Your identity, my identity, our identity does not come from what we do. It's the other way around. It's the right way around. So this passage from Ephesians 2 that Bev read is one of three passages that are really clear in the New Testament about this identity and purpose. So notice the language that Paul uses here. There's both an identity and a purpose in here. Verse 19, you are... Notice the language, you are, this is who you are. God says, this is who you are. We are, Paul says, fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. How does that happen? Like, did you do some training? Was there a course? Did you need to do like a citizenship test? Well, no, the answer is actually back in verse 15. Jesus is the one, and it says that his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. The people of Israel 
and everybody else. Paul gives us a picture from all around him and he warms him up with this warm water. So what do I need to be warmed up? It warms up, it warms up, it warms up. And what does warm Sex. The Romans would say, and it breaks through the skin of the adulterer. And so here we have this, this code of promise and identity that our fellow citizens with God's people. Citizens of where? Well, elsewhere in the scriptures, we're told we are citizens of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. So we are temporarily resident here on earth. I have UK political citizenship, but my spiritual and actually my ultimate citizenship is as a citizen of the king of kingdom of God, where Jesus is the king. And I go on his behalf, in his name, to stand in his power unto the establishing of that kingdom here in this dispensation world. That's who I am. That's my identity bestowed upon me when I came to faith in Jesus, when I submitted to Jesus as Lord. And it's a daily thing as well as a once-off thing. Every morning when I get up, okay, Lord, I am yours. And this is who you say I am. And I'm going to step into that identity. And I'm going to live out that identity in and for the world. That's how it works. Notice then the purpose in this passage, verse 22. The purpose of God is that we become a new dwelling place for him on earth. This is temple language. There was an earthly temple. The Old Testament temple, it was destroyed. Jesus says, you can destroy it in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they're like, what are you talking about? He's talking about his own body. He becomes the temple. And now he says, you are my temple. You are my dwelling place here on the earth. Jesus, we're told in this passage, is the cornerstone, the, the first bit that is in the building. And everything else is built around it. You and I are literally a human physical temple for the dwelling place of God. That is the purpose of the church. That's why we're here, Paul says, to be the dwelling place of God on earth. What for? Well, so that the whole of creation would discover the God who made them. And it would come to discover that they are welcome in his presence. That's just one way that it's articulated in the scriptures. We need the others as well alongside them. So notice this in 1 Peter chapter 2. We look at this passage a lot here. You are, notice the language again, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. It's an identity. This is who we are. And we look around and go, really? Are you, are you sure about that? I'm not Dave. I don't, I don't feel like that. We don't always look like that. We don't always behave like that. God says, this is who you are. And there's a whole load of theology in verse 9 that we don't have time to get into. And then notice it tells us what the purpose of it is. That we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does that mean? To declare the praises of God. Who's we? God? Yes. That's part of our worship, isn't it? We sing uh, and we articulate with our voice worship to God, worship. He is the one worthy of our praise, our worship, our sacrifice. No other God can have his praise. There's many worship leaders in this room. But it's also to declare the praises of God to one another. Absolutely. Formation and community. 
right? So that we would grow into this identity, that we take hold of it, that we bit by bit dare to believe it for each other. But it's also to declare those praises to, of God into the world. Whether it's walking out on a Saturday night with a backpack full of flip-flops. This, I've been out with the street pastors not for, a while, not for a while, but it is extraordinary what they do. And that's their way of declaring the praises of God. But we do it in all sorts of other ways. This is what we do because this is who we are and this is what we're for. You see, what God is saying is, ultimately, will you work with me to bring my redemption project of all creation to glorious completion? There's work for us to do. This is who you are, and this is what you do. The third one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice this. All this, Paul says, is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's a purpose thing there, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We are his representatives, his divine representatives on the earth on behalf of the kingdom. We go on behalf of the king, just like a diplomat or an ambassador goes uh, politically on behalf of King Charles. With authority and power. And elsewhere, the scriptures say that our battle, our fight is not with flesh and blood, but it's with the principalities and powers of the counter kingdom, the kingdom of evil and sin and death and destruction. And we go in the name of Jesus and in the power of Jesus on behalf of the kingdom and the kingdom purposes of God, which is ultimately that all shall be made new and that in everything people would discover a God who's for them, not against them. Are you guys with me? This is what we've signed up for. So everything we do as church, putting the chairs out, singing songs, serving the kids, running a food bank, supporting overseas missionaries, whatever it is that we do, we have to be able to say, here's why. Like, it's, I mean, we don't have to put the chairs out. Would you like to come on a Sunday morning and not have the chairs out? So we put the chairs out so that it's easier to be here, so you can worship God and hear the scriptures and be encouraged, so that when you go out, you've got this fresh idea in your mind. This is who I am. This is what we do. Come on, it's Monday morning. Kingdom of God, come. So we've got to be able to say why we're doing what we do as the church. We've got to be able to map it back to identity and purpose. And there's so much more in that, but it's a really helpful framework. If you go now through the rest of the New Testament, you'll keep seeing statements of truth about who we are and therefore what we do. Let's drill down into it just for a little bit longer, and then we're going to pray together. Why is this so important? It's not just so that you guys go, oh, yeah, that's why we do what we do at All Saints. That's why it makes sense to put some money in and turn up and blah, blah, blah. Actually, it's more fundamentally than than that. There are two reasons why it's so important. Number one, it might just be me, but I don't think it is. We forget who we are. We don't really believe it. We second guess it. But actually, what the scriptures say over and over and over again is this is who you are because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And it is a fact. It is a truth about you. And you can build your life on it. And part of Christian maturity is getting to that place where we are not second guessing it, where we know it so well. Because when we forget who we are or when we second guess who we are, guess what happens? We stop being who we're called to be. 
in and for the world. We stop being the church that Jesus sent us to be for the world. We stop being the church that the world needs. Someone sent me a link to an article in the Times. I don't read the Times, but they sent me this article and, um, by someone called uh, Juliet Samuel. And she said this about a recent survey on the decline of the Church of England. You may have seen it. She said this, I'm not a Christian, but I'm still saddened by Christianity's decline. Where the church withers away, she says, it leaves a gap. There are a few other places where a community gathers regularly, purely to rest and reflect. There is no shared stock of wisdom in times of crisis, only the Google search box waiting for your plaintive question. In fact, she says, technology is a big part of the problem. As the French anthropologist Marc Auger put it, the television and the computer have replaced the hearth of intentional community. And where old religions have faded, new quasi-religions have filled the void. Witness the neo-paganism of some environmentalism, the increased tribalism, she says, of politics, the rise of conspiracy theories, super fandom and health fads. It's easy to see this is just another part of modernity, of society naturally moving on. But, she says, I would argue that secularization is eroding our shared sense of history and culture and community. This loss of the church, she says, is not easily regained. This is a non-Christian saying we're losing something culturally because the church, I would argue, in large part, doesn't really know who she is and therefore isn't really doing what she's called to do. And I have this ongoing, optimistic, call me naive view that here in this church, we can be different. And that's what I've given my life for. I want to go through the motions. I don't want to just do Christianity sort of on a level. I want us to transform the whole nation. We live in a moment, a cultural moment, where people don't know where to even get their identity from. The increasingly increasingly post-Christian world we live in, the more and more secular, and I would argue at times post-secular we're becoming, people are left kind of going, well, how the heck do I even work out who I am? So Carl Truman, who's a Christian philosopher, writes this in his book, and I'll explain what he means. Uh, He says this, there are two different ways of thinking about the world. There is a mimetic view, which regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning, and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Poesis, he says, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. And the Christian worldview is the first of those, a mimetic view. In other words, identity isn't something you pick and choose and build for yourself. It's bestowed upon you as a gift by a good, good father. Because this is what it is to be human. It's to be made in the image of God, to be the Imago Dei, to be his idols in the great temple, to be his representatives, divine regents on the earth for the earth. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. To be human is to be known and loved and sent by God. It's bestowed upon us. It's redeemed for us by Jesus, given back to us in the Great Commission, which is simply a restating of the original commandment to work with God to fill the earth with it till it's full of the glory of God that Adam and Eve had, right? But if you reject that biblical worldview, which is what our culture is increasingly doing, how do you discern what your identity is? Well, Truman says you go on to self-actualize. A bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of this. And our culture says be who you want to be. And it's interesting because actually with that has come increased epidemics of loneliness, escalating soaring issues around mental health, all sorts of scenarios. We are not happier and more free 
without Jesus, we are less so. We have the good news for a world that is increasingly living by poesis, making it up as it goes. But we have to be those people so people can see what it looks like to inhabit the Imago Dei calling. We need to be a church that people go, wow, look at what they do. Oh, hang on a minute. Look at who they are. And deep calls out to deep. And so when you're around people who have been around God, something happens. So the biggest gift we can be to the church, to the world as the church, is not what we do. It's to faithfully and confidently inhabit our vocation to be the divine image bearers in and for the world. Full stop. Notice the first thing that Jesus says, sorry, God says to Adam and Eve when they're created in his image. So it's, everything, was good, everything was good. God says it was good. And then he creates Adam and Eve and he says it's very good. Because they, they're only a bit of creation in, made in, in the image of the Father, ultimately to reveal it in and to creation. What's the first thing he asks them to do? Purpose. Day one. It's not a trick question. Nothing. Sabbath. They rested. On the, they haven't done anything. Because it's not what we do, it's who we are. And we do what we do out of who we are. And we work out who we are again and again by being around the one who made us. Which is why we go on and on and on and on and on and on here about spiritual practices, formation, community, worship, prayer. The activity of the church has to be an overflow, an outworking of our intimacy with the Father. And so if there's an identity crisis in culture, there is also a purpose deficit. In the same way that people are now self-actualizing because there's nothing bestowed upon them that they could believe in and trust and have modeled to them. We're also basically kind of working out, well, I'll do what I want to do. And there's no overarching shared sense of purpose. And so again, I think we've got something wonderful to say to the world, but we must first model it. Otherwise, it's just blah, blah, blah. And part of the reason why people have rejected the church is that we haven't been who we are and we haven't done what we're called to do. We've had a lot to say to the world. But that's not enough. And so Tom Wright, the great theologian, puts it like this. He says, the church exists primarily for two closely correlated purposes. To worship God and to work for his kingdom in the world. Brackets, because that's who we are. The church, he says, also exists for a third purpose, which serves the other two. To encourage one another to build one another up in faith, to pray with and for one another, to learn from one another and to teach one another and to set one another examples to follow. Notice that. Challenges to take up and urgent tasks to perform. This is all part of what is known loosely, he says, as fellowship. Friends, we've got a choice to make at the start of a new ministry year as the people of all saints. Do we, run, do we want to more fully step into who we are discover on a deeper level what it means to be made in the image of God. And from that place, do the things that we're called to do with a fresh confidence and a humility so that in and through us, fundamentally, more than anything, people beyond the church would discover that they too, they too are made in the image of God. And that they too are invited into this household, into this community, to share in the purpose of working with God to fill the world until it resembles the kingdom of God in its fullness. Because only then are people free. 
Only then do we become fully who we are, I believe, as the people of God. Everybody is made in the image of God. Part of the task of the church is to tell people that. And we can tell people with our words, for sure. But the best, best thing we can do is be it. Should we pray?